plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that defining moment when a story, any story, takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, superhero buff and comedy lover. And I'm Fran, reality TV obsessive and true crime enthusiast. And we're from Now TV. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected and hopefully some behind-the-scenes nuggets that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Welcome back. Another episode. Fran, how's it going? Yeah, good. Getting a bit more used to this new normal. Been trying to fill my time, a bit of painting by numbers, some 3,000-piece puzzles, you know, the usual. Um, but also really enjoying watching and re-watching some of my favourite box sets. Oh, yeah? What are you watching? Um, I'm actually re-watching The Walking Dead. Oh, you've gone big. I know, I know. Lots of series to get through, but I might have a lot of time on my hands, so I think it's the right time to do it. Well, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's like top three box sets of the last 10 years. That's huge. How about um, you? I've, well, uh, there's probably a reason why you're watching The Walking Dead. For the same reason I've been uh, revisiting Save Me, is our guest this week is Lenny James. So I've been watching, uh, re-watching Save Me, which is an award-winning series that came out a couple of years ago. It's just, series two has just come back. But if you're not familiar with Lenny James, he's got like an incredible resume where he's been on like Snatch, uh, Jericho, the uh, series line of duty just a few then blade runner 2049 yeah i mean just a few he's like one of these actors if he's been in it it's probably going to be good so we were lucky enough to get to talk to lenny another over the phone uh, but he was in much more exotic climbs than us so he was in austin texas where he was filming fear of the walking dead which is the spin-off series the walking dead uh, which obviously been put on hold at the moment uh, but we got to chat to him about all things save me so Save Me sees the story of a father looking for his abducted daughter and Lenny plays the role of Nelly, which is, uh, he's sort of a womanizer. he's a lovable rogue, he's a complicated character and uh, it just makes for a really gritty series. I mean, Fran, you, you loved this one, didn't you? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was such a raw series. It's full of drama, full of suspense. Um, it was just a brilliant watch. I mean, at times quite uncomfortable with some of the themes that yeah. they explore, but a really sort of addictive series to try and sort of get to the end of. Yeah, it really is. Um, so at the start of the interview, we really started to explore Lenny's career and how, uh, how he got into acting, which was really quite un unconventional in a way. We did, but of course, in classic Tom style, we couldn't kick things off until we'd covered a fun fact that you'd found out about the person that you had in common with them, could we? Well, you've got to find some common ground, Fran. You've got to find it, and we did. Uh, so we won't spoiler alert that for you. So here it is, the first part of our interview with Lenny James on the Plot Twist podcast. Enjoy. One of the things I've got to mention, um, and anyone who knows me will go, of course you've mentioned this, but I saw an interview, your hero is Muhammad Ali. He is, um, yes. Who's, who's my hero as well, as you can probably see from the from the T-shirt, which I've yeah. deliberately worn for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I was um, going to mention it. Yeah. Was, was he a big influence then growing up? He was the biggest influence growing up. He's the only hero I've ever really really had really and I think his influence and, and importance particularly for black kids of my generation was massive. He was the black Superman, he was the one yeah. person outside of possibly Pele where he stood above everybody else. He was the greatest and he was beautiful and 
when I was growing up, there was, you know, I grew up in um, the church, so the Pentecostal church, you know, that, that is kind of big within the West Indian community, particularly for the first generation, that Windrush generation. The church was the centre of where we socialised and where we lived, really. And mm. we would all kind of gather for prayer meetings or just social gatherings um, around each other's houses. But the, one of the main events that wasn't a church event the one of the main events would be when Muhammad Ali was fighting. Black folk would just want to be together, be in the same room to watch this godlike man. And every, everywhere else at that particular time, you were kind of being told that you were either second best or not quite good enough, except as far as Muhammad Ali was concerned, because he was... Oh, for sure. He yeah. was the greatest, and, and, and it helped that he was so beautiful and so statuesque and so clever Courageous. and took crap from no one and was um, always mm. a proud, strong black man. And there were very few images of that when I was growing up. And Ali, he was the kind of centre of pride for us. And he was a great in some boxer. Ways, uh, heroes like that years ago, and, and also, I suppose, TV as well, that because now everything is so accessible that they were even bigger back then because there was more distance in a way. Brought people together. Yeah. And also that some things just go kind of down in history and they become, you know, a footnote of what it was. You know, like when they talk about Muhammad Ali not going to Vietnam and we we just, we in our heads, we kind of think, all oh, right, he just didn't come out of his house. Someone went and knocked for him and said, hey, mate, do you fancy coming to Vietnam? And he went, nah, do you know what? I'm going to give it a swerve. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't quite like that, you know. He had to go down to um, the, uh, the draft office and they, they draw a line in front of all of these kind of military dignitaries, sergeants and drill majors and whoever, and there's a line down the room and all of the recruits stand behind the line and then they have to swear allegiance to the flag. And then they say, soldier, step over the line. And everybody in that room knew that Muhammad Ali had said, I'm not going to Vietnam. And it was just him on his own. And everybody else in that room was against him. Everybody else in that room thought he was a traitor. Everybody else in that room thought he was a coward. And when they said, soldier, step over that line, Every single man in that room who was standing next to him took a step forward over the line and he stayed where he was. They took him into a room behind that line and they threatened his life and his family and his well-being and his career. They brought him back to the line and they said, soldier, step over the line. And he did not step over the line. It's amazing. It's crazy. Oh, whenever somebody says, why is he your hero? You thought about that and it's courage. Yeah, first and foremost, it's so brave. Oh, and they took away yeah. three years of his fighting life at his prime. And then he came back and he beat yeah. the scariest fighter at that particular point in the world. You know, the, the details of what he had to do and how we had to do it is just staggering. Yes, he's my hero. I love him. Still do. Oh. Well, then we could talk to you. I could talk to you about that all day. Um, but let's, <laughs> let's, let's move back on to you, shall we? Your upbringing, your experiences, how, how much of that influenced your career? I don't know, to be absolutely honest. You know, losing my mum at a, a young age is bound to be a kind of, it is a major event in my life and it must have had an influence on me in some way, shape or form. But, you know, so does the brother I had, um, the wife I 
have, the school I went to, the neighbourhood I'm from, friends, family, people who looked after us. So they all kind of have an influence. Um, In terms of getting into acting, though, and and I read something online, I'm desperate to ask if it's true. Um, Is it that you went to an audition? Um, You wanted to be a rugby player, but you went to an audition because you followed a girl to an audition and then ended up in sort of an amateur dramatic society. Is that is that true? It's yeah, it's pretty close to the truth. Yeah, <laughs> um, I was. I love that. I'm a real romantic, so I love. I that. was. I was 15, 16, and I played a lot of rugby at that point. I kind of secretly harboured a wish to do it at the highest level, um, go to university, be, probably be a physiotherapist or a social worker, and play rugby. And met a girl called Lisa. She wanted to be an actress. She was going to go down to the Cockpit Youth Theatre in Marlebone to do a summer project. So the whole summer holiday, if she got into the company, would be putting together this play, um, a musical actually called Just Good Friends. And she went down and auditioned. I went down just to kind of, because <laughs> I figured other fellas might like Lisa. So I went down just to <laughs> kind of let people know that um, she was busy. <laughs> And I was in the room, the director of the company said, uh, you can't be in here unless you're auditioning. And I, I said, literally, at that particular moment in time, had no idea what auditioning was. And he said, learn a speech, sing a song. So he handed me a speech, I learned it, and then I had to sing a song. And I didn't know what song to sing, so I phoned my brother and I said, i got to sing a song. What song do you think white people might like? And um, <laughs> and he said, sing Feelings by Des O'Connor, because one of the ladies who worked in the place that we lived loved Des O'Connor. So I sang Feelings <laughs> by Des O'Connor. And surprisingly, although the director did tell me never to sing that song again, <laughs> yeah, I got offered a place. And Lisa, uh, and this is probably the bit she hates me telling over and over again, did not get offered a place. Oh, no. But I stayed and decided to do it because I was 16 and there were other girls. And that's how I was <laughs> when I was 16, but I've grown up since. So, so you never actually considered acting as a sort of a future sort of profession at that point? No, it wasn't. That wasn't what people did. Certainly not if you're kind of first generation kind of West Indian immigrant. That wasn't what you were doing. It was education. It was university. It was work. And being an actor was just, it wasn't in my realms of possibility. You had to go and do a job. In fact, the theatre company that probably, even before I went to drama school, was my training was a theatre company, which is the Lyric Youth Theatre. And it was run by the artistic director and director called Lucy Parker. And we used to create plays through improvisation. And the company ended up being called Shift Work because so many of us, were actually working while we were trying to do theatre. And that was about as close as I thought I would ever kind of get to it. And at the time I was working for the DHSS, Department of Health and Social Security, and I was working as a rater. So it was my job to decide, based on your circumstances, how much unemployment, sickness or disability allowance that you will be given. And I was doing, I was in rehearsals for a play with shift work and we used to rehearse Tuesday evenings, Thursday evenings and all day on Sunday. And my boss said he liked what I was doing at work and that they were going to send me to Manchester 
for three weeks for the for final training to be a rater. And I said, I can't go. And he said, what do you mean you can't go? I go, well, I'm rehearsing a play at the moment. I can't go. And he kind of laughed at me and said, well, you're just going to have to decide whether or not where your loyalties lie, whether you're going to be sensible and put your put your best thing that you can into this job or you're going to do this acting lark. And I went, you're absolutely right. I do have to decide. So I left. I left work and and wow. just didn't go back. And then he came and because I was only I was quite young. He came and knocked on my door, came to my house, and um, my foster mother answered the door. And that was when she found out that I'd given up job, my job. And, um, and that's when we had a kind of family meeting where I kind of um, finally said out loud, I think I'm going to... Because I've secretly been auditioning or saving up the money to audition for drama school. And that's when I had to front up with my family and say, I think I'm going to try and give this acting lark a go. And because um, they've been very supportive, they just didn't believe that it was something that could sustain you through your life. I mean, you know, they yeah. they turned up at every single play and they would bring friends and family and people from the church. Everybody would kind of come down. They were a great sense of support. They just didn't believed that it was something that you can make a life out of so it was a big deal and it was a big conversation and moving on from there what at what point did you feel like actually i am starting to make head waves i am i, I am making it in this profession how far down um, was it from there i did a play at the national theater and it was actually norman beaton's last play and norman beaton was an actor who was for a long time people will probably best know him from the comedy show Desmond's that was on Channel 4 for a long time, set in a, a black barber shop in uh, South London. And Norman was part of the Windrush generation. And he was the actor that everybody of my foster mother's generation, uh, that Windrush generation, everybody knew him. And in this play, it was called The Coup. It was at the National. It was about a fictitious coup in Trinidad. And he was playing the Prime Minister of uh, Trinidad and I was playing the young guard who was charged with looking after him and guarding him in the middle of this coup. And he, through unimportant circumstances, kind of knew my foster mother. And he was aware that she was worried about this acting thing and, and whether I could make a life out of it. And Norman, God bless him, kind of took my foster mother to the side and said... I think Lenny's going to be all right. And that gave me a huge amount of confidence. It was a real boost and boast. And it was a, a support that I needed at that particular time. And he was a fan. He was a fantastic mentor, although he died just a couple of days after we finished um, that play. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And, and at what point did you move from sort of just purely acting into writing? Was that something you'd always be interested in or does that develop as you sort of move through your career? I acted in my first play when I was 16. I wrote my first play when I was 17. And I entered it oh, wow. into a the National Youth Theatre playwriting competition and it won. I was the most promising playwright under 21 category. I shared it with another young writer called Ed Kemp, who's now a theatre director. And he wrote one about the Metropolitan Police and I wrote one about a mock trial in a children's home. That was my first play. And one of the judges from the playwriting competition liked my play and put it forward to Faber and Faber, who 
published it in an anthology of new plays. So by the time I was 18, I was a published playwright after my first play and (laughs) had no idea. I was like, all right, I'll do this then, shall I? (laughs) I mean, that's a plot twist in itself. You know, you've gone from this sort of aspiring rugby player, stumbled into an audition and then a published playwright within what, two years? Within within two years. So from there, you you went on to write Storm Damage, didn't you? Yeah. Which, am I right in thinking that had a connection to Save Me? Well, I don't know if it. I don't know if it led on. To, I mean, it it had a connection to it. I, I mean, um, Storm Damage was the first thing I got produced on television. It was a film for the BBC. It took six years to get it made, but that was twenty years ago now. And a bit like with all of my writing, I thought I would write more, but the acting kind of got in the way. And um, and around the time that Storm Damage came out, I think within the same year or so, um, Snatch came out. Yeah, and, great uh, film. And 24-hour party people wasn't far behind that. So I was very, very busy as an actor. And although I had kind of ideas of things to write, I didn't have the brain space. I had, you know, three kids I was raising with my wife. And, you know, and any time away from them had to be really important time. And the acting seemed to take up all of that time really so the writing didn't really happen but save me came around because Anne Mensah who at the time was head of drama at Sky remembered my film Storm Damage from 20 years ago and she phoned my agent and said why isn't Lenny writing and my agent said that's a very good question let's ask him and um (laughs) that's the connection so my agent phoned me I was in Detroit at the time doing a television show out here in America, and she said, Anne wants to know why you're not writing and wants to know whether or not you have an idea for a returning television show. And I went, I don't know, let me have a think. And um, I had a think and came up with Save Me and submitted it, and they liked the treatment enough to commission a first episode, and then they liked the first episode enough to commission a second episode, and they liked the second episode enough to commission the series. Incredible. And just before we deep dive on to Save Me, because we've got, Fran and I have got quite a few questions on that. We can't not talk <laughs> about uh, Morgan Jones. When you when you signed up to that, did you have any idea just how big it was? I mean, in the last 10 years, The Walking Dead has been, it's been up there as one of the biggest series. Yeah. Did you think that was going to happen when no, you first no, started? No, no, no one did. Because we did six episodes in the first series and I was in the first one. And it was a 90 minute and it was great. It was a huge amount of fun. It was the first time I got to work with Andy Lincoln. Virtually all of my stuff was with Andy and Adrian, who played my son. And it was great, but no one thought it was going to... Everything was vampires at that particular moment in time. No one thought that this <laughs> show about... They were in trend. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was, you know, Vampire Diaries, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the thing, the three, the werewolf and the vampire fighting over Kristen Stewart thing, Twilight. It was that. Everything was yeah, everything wow. was vampires. There was no zombies around. They had no idea it would go to a second series, let alone that it would turn into the biggest for a good number of years, turned into the biggest television show in the world. Yeah. And then leading on to Save Me, I mean, we've got so much here, Fran, haven't we? I'm just intrigued. So obviously you've got contact to say, okay, we'd love you to write something. How do you go from that sort of blank piece of paper to the concept of Save Me? 
Um, it's really uh, hard. Basically, Save Me came out of, I had another idea that I was slightly kind of working on, and it was a very different story. And in the heart of it, there was a, a bit of it which was about a father who was looking for his daughter who had run away. She's his youngest daughter. Her big sister comes back from university and the father and daughter go looking for the runaway daughter. And that was my idea. And the father was an ex-cop who had stopped being a cop and had become a private investigator after his wife died and he needed to be home to look after his girls. That was the story. That was the one I had started kind of working on when Anne asked, did I have an idea? And then... As I was kind of putting that idea together and fleshing it out, it just felt a little bit like I'd seen it all before. And then I decided, you know what, why don't I make the main character, rather than be a fella who has a certain set of skills, just make him useless. Um, so I decided on <laughs> making him useless and, and a less fully, you know, fully formed man um, and that led me to Nelly, and Nelly led me to the estate, the estate led me to the pub, and then all of the other characters just fell into place, and that's when I thought, actually, I've got a story here that's got legs, and that's when it kind of turned into the save me that it is now. I think that's what's so interesting about it, is that it's it's almost like a detective series, but we're following Nelly as the kind of detective in a way as he's sort of unearthing all of the different sort of clues as to where his daughter is. And I think that's what makes it so interesting is that it's got such a different feel to sort of a classic missing sort of child or missing person series. Was that always the intention to sort of, to, to give it that very different feel to something that people had seen before? I have to stress decisions made about this story weren't just about it being different to other things. It was a lot more about this is the story I wanted to tell and there was a tagline that I put at the end of the treatment, which kind of sustained us all the way through making the first series and the second series. And, and it was that the worst thing that has happened to his child may turn out to be the best thing that ever happened to him. And that had very much been at the heart of the story that I wanted to tell, that a terrible thing had happened. But out of it, a man who thought he was doing OK, you know, Nelly, um, within his two square miles of the estate and the surrounding areas, was king. He was doing all bubble. right. He had a roof over his Yeah, in his bubble. He had a roof over his head. He had beer when he wanted beer. And he had company when he wanted company. And he was doing all right. And then this bomb is let loose in his life. It's not just that his child's gone missing. It shows him how much he's been missing from her life and his absence mm. is what's caused her disappearance and he goes in search of her to make up for that and along the way you know almost be has the potential to become a better man and a better father to a child he may never see again yeah it's got a very a real sort of sense to it i mean you must get told all the time but it's it, viewing it it's, it's so authentic and, and and the essence of London, the estate, and that's that two kilometer perimeter almost. Yeah, that that really like comes through as almost a, a bit of a tribute to South London in a way. It was. It was. A, I wanted to write about a part of South East London that I'm not from because I'm a South West Londoner, but it's an area that I knew very well, and I hadn't often seen it depicted in a way that I recognised. And I don't criticise any of the past depictions of it. But mostly if you set something on an estate, all you're looking at is the problems. 
and um, the things that are wrong with it, the people being unemployed, kids being disenchanted, you know, racial tensions or, um, you know, uh, drug issues, all of those kind of things. And they're all real and they all happen and I'm not discarding them, but also in amongst all of that, people are getting on with their lives. They're raising their kids, they're falling in love, they're laughing, they're having a, a, a drink and and they're trying to build futures for their kids, navigating their way through a life. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about how that gets done and who people are and who their friends are and how they navigate their ends. And that was part of what was important for me as a backdrop to my thriller. And we've had we've had a few guests now on the podcast who've sort of written and starred in in series, um, and they often say that they sort of draw on their own character to sort of carve out the character or the protagonist in the series itself. Was there anything that you sort of put into Nelly's character from your own, or was it something that he was created sort of fully as independent to you? I don't know that the, I, I wasn't conscious of putting anything of certainly not in the writing of it. In the writing of it, I had to very much separate. Nelly from me. See, the thing about Nelly was very different for me is as an actor, you have to be a bit of a chameleon. You have to adjust to new surroundings in a very quick space of time. And that's not to say that you end up being different people, but sometimes you are using different parts of your personality in order to get through the day with a new group yeah. of people until you feel safe enough to be yourself. Yeah. That that isn't true of Nelly. Nelly is always Nelly, regardless of wherever you drop him. You drop him in Buckingham Palace. You drop him in <laughs> Brixton Market. Nelly's going to be exactly the same geezer, and that was that was really important for me because it's the thing I most admire about um, Nelly as a character, but also one of the fellas that I knew who I based Nelly on. One of the things I most admired about that particular person and still do admire about them is that you could be the prime minister or the lady serving him in the chip shop and you're darling and babe. And he just doesn't give a <laughs> shit. And I, I love that about him. And it's one of the things that I really wanted to capture in the writing of Nelly and very much capture in the playing of him that he would twinkle his twinkle at, uh, at anybody um, in, in, the, in the pursuit of Jody. He is a lovable rogue, isn't he? Yeah, that's yeah, one way of describing him, yeah. So that was Lenny James on the Plot Twist podcast. What an engaging guy he is. And he was just talking there about Save Me and uh, there's plenty more to come in part two. But can we just rewind a little bit, Fran? Because his story about how he gets into acting, that's incredible. It's pretty romantic. I thought you'd love that. Oh, I know. I absolutely loved it. I would give anything for someone to love me enough to follow me to an audition like that. <laughs> Although I think if I was Lisa, I'd be pretty annoyed the fact that he got a part and she didn't. It's like the worst ending to a love story for her ever. But I talk about those like split decision moments to follow her to the interview, to then get the audition. Two years later, he's, he's like, he's a playwright, which is a plot twist in itself. And I it know, kind I of can't forms believe that. the path of his career. Yeah, he's, he's thinking he's going to be this rugby player. Spur of the moment goes to an audition. And then only two years later, he's already had quite a significant success. And then it's just gone on from there, hasn't it? 
Yeah, incredible, especially considering it wasn't on his radar at all. But he's clearly got a real natural ability to write. So, I mean, Save Me only came about because he was approached to write a series following storm damage. And then he comes up with the whole concept of Save Me from a couple of sort of themes that he wanted to explore. I just think it's it's awesome. Yeah, throughout the interview, you kind of got that creative side to him, didn't you, where things were ticking away and these concepts and ideas are coming about. And I just love that he's had this career where he's been in Jericho, Walking Dead and all these successful shows. And something that he'd written 20 years before then gets watched by somebody at Sky and suddenly he's he's approached to then do Save Me. And he had this idea ready there to go. But he writes some interesting characters, doesn't he? So Nelly, the way that he describes him, like the fact that he actively says about his lead part, yeah, he's useless. (laughs) <laughs> you, you, know, yeah. you rarely get that it's not this kind of like sexy crime drama he's like yeah he's absolutely he's not fully formed uh and he's and he's pretty damn useless so yeah part two we'll see us uh, continue the conversation around save me with lenny talking about his role as a writer of the series and exploring some of the darker themes that is within the show so let's get back to it part two of our interview with lenny james on the plot twist podcast Speaking of sort of plot twists, I think this series, obviously, anyone who hasn't watched series one who is listening to this, there's about to be a spoiler. Um, We obviously get to the end of series one and and we're led down this path to think that Nelly's going to find Jodie and he doesn't. And and you've talked a lot about kind of the story wrote itself. Did you know it was going to end up there or was that an intentional that it, it sort of it closed out that he hadn't quite found her, but he was kind of on the path to? Yeah, I mean, I think that people's expectations about what was going to happen at the end of the first six has become a bigger deal than it ever was for me. He was never going to find her at the end of the first six. For me, and this is just my taste and my and the story that I wanted to tell, if he had found her at the first six, I would have felt like that was a cop-out and that was television about television and not about mm. the journey. I mean, a lot of the time when kids go missing if they're not returned within the first 48 to 72 hours, then something else is going on. And it was much more about the long-term loss of a child than it was a rescue mission that he pulls off at the last minute. The big difference between the first six and the second six is the 17 months in between. So at the beginning, you are absolutely in the first one running with Nelly yes. and believing his belief that he's going to be the hero of his own story. The reality of the situation is that didn't happen and was unlikely to happen. And now we're 17 months down the road and looking at what it looks like when you still go to sleep. Your last thought at night and your first thought in the morning is, where is my child? And it is literally you and maybe one other person who are having that thought. So it's Nelly and Claire and probably Barry um, are the only people left now. The police investigation has been moved on. The flyers that told you that Jodie was missing have been pulled down. There's no more news articles about her. To a great or lesser extent, everybody has moved on with their life. And there are three people who are going... Where's Jodie every night and every morning? And that's where the second series starts. The first series very much feels like, as you say, he's running out of time and that he almost needs to, he needs to find her before a certain time period's up. So 
obviously we're, we're now further into the future. So what is sort of is the pace of the second series like? Is it around sort of, again, unearthing those sort of leads that he think is going to take him somewhere? Or is there sort of a big pivotal moment in series two? Um, there, yeah, there are a couple of big pivotal moments, but I think that the important thing about series two is if series one is what do I have to do in order to find Jody, then series two is when do I stop? Those are the questions that Nelly is forced to ask himself. And you mentioned uh, chameleons earlier, and I think you've you said before that Gary Oldham is the uh, the ultimate chameleon. But you've got some pretty good ones in uh, the series. I mean, Saran Jones, Stephen Graham. I mean, if they're in any production, the likelihood it's going to be pretty good. Yes, I mean, you could go all the way down our cast list with Jason Fleming and Kerry Godleman, Kerry Godleman, and Susan Lynch, yeah. and. Camilla Beepup and Alice Fetham and Tom Coombs, you know, Nadine Marshall. I'm just staggered by the cast that we've got, you know, and now we've got Aid Edmondson and Olive Gray joining for the second series. So, yeah, it's staggering. It's amazing. Um, we are so lucky and not least because we've got, you know, Oscar nominated Leslie Manville as well. Thank you very much. So um, she's, <laughs> she's jumped on board. We must be doing something right. Oh, definitely. What is it about Gary Oldham that makes him the ultimate chameleon? Because he is... I mean, there are, you know, there are good actors and there are uh, great actors. And Gary Oldman at his best genuinely becomes the character. I mean, I think there's a lot of times when, you know, we say it about like De Niro and, and Brando and they are without question, amazing, beautiful, fantastic actors, but they're always De Niro and they're always Brando. You've always got a sense of the actor behind the mask. Um, at his best, um, Ullman was able to do that with, you know, in Sid and Nancy, in uh, State of Grace, in, you know, weird things like, you know, he did one of the Hannibal movies and he was just unrecognisable of himself and he just... He's just in it. He's not on the outside kind of showing you all the bells and whistles and all of that kind of stuff. He's bang smack in it. His heartbeat is different for for the different characters. I just I just thought he was he was an amazing actor. And we've got a bit of uh, trivia, Lenny. Got a few nuggets that we found on the internet. I thought we'd run these by you, Fran and I, just uh, before we wrap up. I mean, one of the things that you and Nelly have in common, you know, both likable. But then I found out you're a Tottenham Hotspur fan. What's that all about? What team do you support? Southampton, you've pinched a few of our players as my well. Fa my family are Tottenham family, so... Well, well there you go. I don't, see what, I, don't see, I don't see what your problem is. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Southampton, I like Southampton, really, but they've become a kind of, well, not become... Feeder club. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the team that Southampton could have, the players that Southampton have sold and, you know, the, and the <laughs> managers they've let go, it's just... It's ridiculous. I don't know how you can run a football team the way that a football no. club in the way that Southampton have and still manage to to pull it off. But you were having a fantastic turnaround um, in the season before it ended. I mean, your your big Austrian manager has really seemed to be pulling it together and and you know and having another go and showcasing another bunch of players that you were going to sell to bigger clubs. But it's the uh, merry-go-round at Saints, I'm afraid. Yeah. No, but, you know, yeah. and at the same time, you know, us at Spurs were having our own little uh, turn of fate. And uh, I'm not very much not in favour of um, our 
new manager and who he is and what he brings and what he will do to my club and how he came in. Um, the jury is very, 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 very out at the moment, and it'll be a long, <laughs> it will be a long time before I sing that man's name. It's a fu- it's a funny game. It's an insane game. I did enjoy, though, reading your quote that you said, uh, my wife said that I'm allowed to say Tottenham and then her in that yeah. order. And so she, she, clearly accept, she clearly accepts the hierarchy there. Yeah, she, <laughs> and she's the, she's the reason why I support Tottenham, really. I kind of married into it. It was the best place to hang out with her brothers so that she, they would let me hang out with her, their sister. And that's, <laughs> Solid where strategy. I, that's where I started going. But, you know, she's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> and just just in terms of your your career is is save me the proudest project of your career uh i'm lucky i've got a few getting very lucky getting storm damage made was massive for me because it was my first one um getting save me made absolutely is something that i'm immensely proud of but i've been lucky i've been very proud to have, have been in line of duty i'm very proud to have been associated with a show i did for channel four called buried um um, jericho jericho very proud of what we did with walking dead and what i've made of that particular character and what we're doing over on fear so and there's loads of things i did on stage that i'm very proud to have been a part of there's a few points i've had a good number of points in my career where Honestly, I would go, if I don't do anything else except that, I'm all right. I can live with that. And I've had at least five or six of those. So, yeah, I'm, I count myself very lucky. No, and which would you say in your career is the biggest plot twist? So the most unexpected opportunity or turn that you've taken? It depends. Really. I mean, I'd probably put it down to a person that I met who has had the biggest influence on me, both as an actor and a writer. And that was Lucy Parker, who ran the youth theatre at the Lyric in Hammersmith. She taught me all about being real in acting and mentored me as a writer. And it was also where I met my wife. So without question, Lucy um, has been the biggest influence on my life and without question, probably the biggest plot twist as far as my career is concerned. I think meeting her, working with her, being a part of that company was, as far as being an actor and a writer was concerned, was probably my biggest influence. And, and it was very much down to her. And one final thing, I'm just conscious of time. The story of Michael Byrne, apparently you were stuck at an airport for six hours. Yeah. And he gave you some advice about how to act on screen. It was my first big job out of drama school. We were flying from London to Dominica, which meant because of the ways things went there, we flew London, Paris, Paris, Martinique. We stayed overnight in Martinique and then we flew Martinique to Dominica. And on the Martinique leg, we got to the airport and it was like a 12-seater plane and they loaded it up with everybody's luggage and then realised that there were too many people on the plane. So they just went, all right, two of you have to stay and we'll come back and get you. And so two of us who stayed was myself and Michael Byrne. And anybody who doesn't know Michael Byrne, he's one of those actors who... I don't think he'd mind me saying is one of those guys where you go, oh, you're that guy from that thing. 
Um, he's just yeah, one yeah, of those yeah. faces where you just kind of go, I know I've seen you, I just can't remember what it's from, and but he's been in everything. He was in the Indiana Jones, he kind of played Nazis or priests, um, seemed to be the thing that he would do. But he was an, um, an, um, is an amazing actor and a lovely, lovely man. And he kind of, it was my first big job, as I say, on television out of drama school. And he kind of took me under his wing. And we were sat at the airport waiting for the plane to fly to Dominica and come back. And we just started talking and I was going, I haven't really acted on camera in that way. And he just very quietly, very kindly, just talked me through the do's and don'ts of basic acting on film, you know, not being too big, not being too small, where you make your choices, where you trust yourself, how to be aware of the shot. Um, it was the first time I'd even considered the notion of asking anybody what size the shot was, you know, how much of you was being seen by the camera. It hadn't even crossed my mind until Michael made me aware of it. I mean, it wasn't so much that he taught me how to act on camera, it's just he took away a large chunk of my ignorance. I didn't walk onto that set in complete ignorance. And he, so he, <laughs> he, he did that for me. And for that, I'll be eternally grateful. Well, Lenny, I've absolutely loved that. That was, that was great. This has great been great. Chat. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being on Plot Twist. And we're looking forward to watching series two. I hope you enjoy it. Um, buckle in. So that was Lenny James on part two of the Plot Twist podcast. I mean, what a guy. Top bloke. How great was that to hear all about how he got to write Save Me, all of oh, the, the twists and turns of the series. And I, I loved speaking to him about the ending of series one because as much as I hated it at the time, because I just wanted resolution, it's so true. It's so much more realistic of what a story like that might look like as an ending. I, I thought it was great. It's more authentic, isn't it? And I suppose uh, the similarities between uh, Nelly to Lenny sort of being real. And that's how he just came across on, on the whole podcast. I, he just came across as super, super humble. And it just felt like whatever path he'd taken in life, in that interview when we spoke to him on that afternoon, he would have been the same person regardless. I thought he was awesome. I think what's really interesting for me was when we asked him about his plot twists in his career, he cited people. And we've not yeah, actually first had that to say yet. That, really. No, we yeah. haven't had that yet. And he didn't kind of say, I was doing this big project or when I broke into stardom, it was more, oh, it was Lucy from the youth theatre because she had a real impact on how I decided to sort of get into acting. And I, I just thought, what, what a very different angle to take on a, on a question that we've asked quite a few people now. Yeah, when you spoke about Michael Byrne and about how he kind of gave him the steer on how to act in front of a camera and... Yeah, he was full of gratitude throughout. He was, um, yeah, a humble guy. I think, though, we should take a moment to give a big shout-out to his wife who allows football to come ahead of the pecking <laughs> order of her. She's a much bigger woman than I am for, for allowing that. She's a keeper. She's a keeper. <laughs> um, well, I mean, as Lenny ended there, he said sort of buckle in for Series 2, which is on Now Do. TV, and I certainly will be. It's definitely on my watch list for this week. So on that note, I hope everyone has a good week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week on the Plot Twist podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.